your seats. We're in uh, the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Um, every year I kind of move through a different Gospel account of the resurrection. Man, this is so important. This is... Uh, I always get so stressed about Easter Sunday. It's like analysis paralysis. The older I get, the more I read and reflect and see the different nuances of it. I get... Um, get paralyzed with all the different things that I feel like I have to hold together. And um, sometimes it drives me crazy. So this message came together kind of late last night, but um, I hope it'll be a blessing to you, and I hope it gives us a new window into the significance of the resurrection. The heart of Christianity is the real bodily resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is a big, big deal. In fact, Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, says, If Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless, and actually, so is your faith. So this isn't one pillar. This is the foundation of the Christian faith. And that's because the resurrection unlocks new possibilities and promises, both before death and this life, and then carrying through and into life after death, and then life in the age to come. It's what some in our culture would call a game-changer. And so it's natural when you investigate the accounts of the resurrection that you are expecting to be blown away. But what meets you on those pages is something kind of different. It's surprising and maybe even a little bit underwhelming or even disappointing, depending on how you've calibrated your expectations. The actual account of resurrection morning is really strange and weird and very counterintuitive, but it's wildly hopeful. These are not, sorry, the events of the first resurrection morning are not what you would expect if you were writing the script for the first time. And what struck me this year about the resurrection was just how quiet and subtle it was. And how everybody who's a part of those first Uh, The news of the resurrection, the first encounters with Jesus, they rely actually on an intervention in order for them to connect the dots. They're moving into Sunday morning and they're about to miss it. And so that first Easter morning, I want us to put this lens on what we're about to read, that no one sees this coming and as new creation and resurrection hope breaks forth, it's very, very quiet. It's not loud. Luke 24, verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. The women are taking spices to cover the body, to counteract the stench of bodily decomposition. Jewish people did not embalm bodies. So if you are bringing bodies to a tomb, you are not expecting resurrection, you are not expecting to come across any kind of a plot twist, they've come to bury hope. This is their last act before they formally close the book on what they understood to be their journey with Jesus. This is a context of deep grief, overwhelming loss, tremendous confusion, and emotions that I'm sure hover on the edge of despair. Now notice something really weird about the text. We already know that resurrection has happened. 
And yet, there's no fanfare at this point. There's nothing. The women are going to honor Jesus one last time, but Jesus is alive. They're living... Their lived experience is a cocoon of deep grief. And yet, Jesus is alive. I think that's so weird. It's so counterintuitive. When Jesus died, all manner of signs happened that shook the world's attention. There was a, the sun was darkened. There was an earthquake. The, the curtain in the temple was rent from top to bottom. That's a massive, heavy curtain. It was loud. It was destructive. But on resurrection morning, it's nothing. It just seemed to them like just another first day of the week. And I think that's important to note because this quote has gone around and, and no one really knows where it comes from, but it's an observation about nature. And the observation is this. A seed grows with no sound but a tree falls with loud noise. And that's because destruction has noise, but creation is quiet. Destruction has noise, but creation is quiet. So true. And I think what Luke wants us to see, and all the gospel writers want us to say is, maybe new creation is even quieter. It's really actually easy to miss. Almost everyone in Luke's account was on track to miss the significance of what has already happened. They needed an intervention. And to me, that gives me pause because I have to brace myself to say, have I fallen into the, I have to question myself and say, have I fallen into the trap of thinking that God's most powerful movements in my life are going to be loud and obvious and undeniably, bam, there it is? Because of that first resurrection morning, the actual hinge of history is this quiet, this subtle. I need to retrain um, my expectations and my perception around who God is and how God works. Verse 2, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they didn't find the body of Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. And this is where I think there's a long, kind of awkward, pregnant pause. And the women look at each other, and they look at these supernatural ent entities. And then the angels kind of realized they're not connecting the dots and they said, Rem do you remember when he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners and be crucified and then on the third day rise again? And then, ah, okay, A to B, got it. But again, notice no one sees this coming. No one's anticipating this. Verse 9, when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others, these were the disciples, minus Judas. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they didn't believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. In all of Roman history, in all the thousands of crucifixions that were ever uh, executed, no one survived a crucifixion. Nobody. 
That is not something you just faint and then come back from or regather strength. Rome knew how to kill people in brutal and definitive ways. But it says, Peter got up and ran to the tomb, and bending over, he saw strips of linen lying by themselves, and then he went away wondering what had happened. He's trying to puzzle it together. He's confused. What does this mean? What's going on? There's a lot of people today wondering, like, I don't really get the Easter thing. Jesus is alive. He's resurrected. Okay. Um, I, I, don't, I don't understand what I'm supposed to take from that. And that's what Peter's trying to do here. He's trying to say, all the data in front of me, it doesn't make sense. And do you notice also that all the followers of Jesus to this point, and it's going to continue, all the followers of Jesus to this point are depicted as basically being completely out of the loop when it comes to the resurrection. And that's important because that's one of the single strongest arguments that what we're studying here is a historical document and not a document that was later edited and then they added and augmented details in order to create some kind of myth around Jesus' resurrection. Because if you were to do that, remember these 11 apostles and the early disciples, they're people who are leading the charge in the early church. They need to gather and gain authority for themselves if they want this movement to take off so the narrative would go. So you're going to leave in all these details about how these people were dim-witted, didn't connect the dots, confused, didn't anticipate, weren't full of faith, coming to bury, uh, sorry, coming to spice the dead? Why would you make the disciples look so unprepared, so foolish, so confused? And to me, that's a good argument of one of the reasons why we can trust that these accounts like Luke says at the start of his gospel, these are eyewitness accounts. These are the things that happened. And you know what? Luke is implicitly saying, this does not make us look good. This does not make the early Christians look good. But this is what happened. And don't you think it's weird and counterintuitive that Jesus chose to make his resurrection so subtle and quiet? Again, no fanfare. People have to be kind of led along with breadcrumbs. And... Don't you find it strange that he's nowhere to be found? Like, why isn't he outside the tomb? Like, where is Jesus right now? <laughs> like, what's, what's he doing? Because you'd think he would want to greet these disciples. Well, we get some insight into where he is in the second scene. Verse 13 says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They've been at Jerusalem for the Passover. They've seen the events. Now they're heading home. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Right? They were processing it. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them. But they were kept from recognizing him, which is weird. Because why wouldn't Jesus make himself known boldly? Like, ta-da! <laughs> Eyes of fire, flaming robes. <laughs> I'm the conqueror of death. It'd be so wicked, so metal. But they're just think some guy has come up beside them. And what is Jesus doing taking time out to approach like literally two randos? Like the most, these are not important people. We're, we were told one is Cleopas. The other person is likely his wife. Just a random couple. Why would Jesus prioritize them? 
They're like nobodies. And he asks that, and he asks them, what are you discussing as you walk among the road? And they're like, it says they stood still, they kind of stopped, their faces are downcast, and one of them, Cleopas, says, are you literally the only person who's been around this region who, haven't, who hasn't heard about what's happened? And Jesus is like, what things? What has happened? And they say about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people and the chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all of this took place and in addition, some of our women amazed us. But that word could also just, it's not like, wow, amazing, more like confusing, like, what? They went to the tomb early this morning. They didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but like, no one saw Jesus. Again, it's so weird to me that these people are walking, walking along this road. They are, they are inches away from the reality, the embodied reality of the resurrection. Look, they just they don't see it. Isn't that, I mean, that's so weird that you can get so close to the most important event and truth in human history and still, again, be stuck in your own like little, little cocoon bubble. Oh, like I, I, I'm living into this script. I see the way life is. It's another tragedy. This is what always happens. There's an uprising. Rome puts the boot on us and now... We just move into another cycle of praying to God and hoping things change, but let's be real. The world is run by brutal, uncompromising grabs for power. Resurrection has occurred. New creation has occurred. Something parallel has, sorry, unparalleled has taken place, but these, uh, this couple are still walking in a story where they are absolutely convinced the major story beats are hopelessness and despair and disillusionment. And then Jesus says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things in order to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther, but they urged him, no, 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 stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day's almost over. So he went in and stayed with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. And then verse 31 says, then the eyes, sorry, then their eyes were opened, and then they recognized him. But then he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts like burning within us while he talked with us on the road? And as he opened the scriptures to us, like now they see it. They're like, we've been in this little cocoon of, uh, Uh, of grief and loss and despair and it's actually not true jesus is alive and he showed us by walking us through scripture this is all meant to happen there's a grand plan in place but can you imagine again this is so weird can you imagine being tapped or you're part of the um the movie production uh, uh, team that's charged with telling luke what happens at this point of the story how is jesus going to reveal himself to these people. He's, he's in secret, but then how is it going to happen? Well, even before that, who would you have him reveal himself to first? 
And again, it would be awesome and dramatic. What if Jesus' first post-resurrection appearance was to the emperor, goes right to the top of Rome? Boom. Or the high priest. Or Pontius Pilate. And again, we get that picture of, uh, from Revelation. Imagine if Jesus just stands before them, eyes blazing like fire, um, clothes like lightning, just this awesome display of power. And when he shows up, what would be the miraculous manifestation that he would use to just set that truth in them that like, you know, I have conquered the grave. Like this is a, this is a new day. I'm in charge now. But not only does Jesus not go to the heights of power, he just goes to regular people. And he uses the most ordinary exchange, just sitting down across the table and breaking bread. That's what he uses to open their eyes to the most significant event in their history and in world history. To me, that is so weird. Then he disappears. And are you seeing a pattern emerge here in Luke? And it carries over in the other Gospels as well. The reality of the resurrection is really, really understated. And it comes into people's lives in very subtle and very gentle ways. And Jesus, the post-resurrection Jesus, makes the good news known to people through very ordinary means, like breaking bread and sharing a meal. What is going on? Shouldn't the resurrection be attested to by signs and wonders and power? Verse 33, then they got up at once and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and they said, it's true, the Lord has risen. He has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Third scene in Luke's gospel. Verse 36, while they were still talking about this, so all these disciples together, they're locked in a room, by the way. That's a detail another gospel gives us. They're in hiding. They don't want to be associated with Jesus because he got killed and his associates are going to follow that same path if they're found out. While they were still talking, Jesus himself stood among them and then said, peace be with you. That's weird. And they're frightened and they're startled and they think they saw a ghost or a vision, right? They're like, are you seeing, are you, am, I, am I the only one seeing this? Are you seeing this? Are you hearing this voice? And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me. Go ahead, touch me. Test it out, see. A ghost or a vision, it doesn't have flesh and bones like I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet and they touched Jesus and like, okay, he's real. This is happening. But he just appeared, among, he has a body that is transcending time and space. Like just imagine how difficult this is for them to take in. And while they still did not believe because of the joy and amazement, he kind of breaks this awkward silence and says, do you guys have anything to eat? I haven't had a good meal since like Friday. I am hungry. You guys have anything? And right, you just imagine they're looking at each other like, what in the world is going on? So they give him some broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. It's not a ghost, not an apparition, not a vision, not a hallucination, not a group hallucination. 
They're giving him food. They're, he's eating it. They're all probably very silent and watching and looking at each other and watching. Really, really weird. He's really there, but he's like more there than he was before. He's real, but he's more real. He's substantial, but he's more substantial. Unbelievable. And, and, and the wounds on his hands, I mean, that's, again, really weird. Because if this is a resurrected body, if this is somehow God vindicating Jesus and giving him a perfect body, wouldn't a perfect body be perfect? Why would there still be scars and wounds? And I think that's Jesus and God's way of saying to us, well, some wounds, however painful, point to something so glorious and good that they actually have to stick. They have to stick around forever. And they're a badge of honor for Jesus because he went to the cross for you and me. And they're a symbolic reminder for all eternity of his love for us. And he says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled as it was written about in the Law of Moses in the Old Testament and the Prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you're going to be witnesses to these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And then Luke really compacts uh, a number of days in these last few verses and says, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. And they worshiped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. That's part one of Luke's gospel of Jesus. Part two is the book of Acts. So let's sort this out. Jesus is alive, but he's not just metaphorically alive or mythically alive or symbolically alive or insubstantially alive. He's really alive. And he's not just resuscitated, he's resurrected. He has a body that is human, but more human and um, has been transformed in such a way that it can't be held. Uh, it's, it's incorruptible to the powers of sin and death. And it can just move through reality in a way that ours can't. And it's equally comfortable shifting through time and space, but also eating a simple meal prepared by friends. It's a body that exists beyond the reach of death and decay. And the disciples begin to realize this means God has raised Jesus from the dead into the resurrection life. And that validates everything Jesus said. We've, there's been a lot of prophets, a lot of people speaking for God, a lot of people saying, I'm the way, follow me, do this, I have the power to transform your life. But they're all still in their graves. God has only raised one from the dead in a resurrected state, and it's Jesus. And that means you have to kind of start at the resurrection and work backwards through everything that Jesus did, how he presented himself, what he said about himself, and himself, and you have to realize the resurrection is God saying, I validate that on every level. All of it. And that means that the resurrection is hope for those who turn to Jesus. 
The resurrection means that for those who trust in Christ, that sickness and death and dysfunction and hopelessness, however much they have defined your life and your relationships, they actually don't have to have, they don't have, to have the last word. Frederick uh, Buchner said, resurrection means that the very worst things are never the final things when we're in Christ. The resurrection of the Son of God means that the last great power, death, actually can be overcome by a love so strong that it can't be held back and held down. It's so powerful in its purity and strength, it breaks the powers of sin and death. And that means eternal life isn't just wishful thinking. It's possible in and through Jesus. And then heads really start spinning as the rest of the Bible plays out and people begin putting these pieces together. Because as days unfold into weeks, unfold into months, unfold into years, in the wake of this resurrection, events begin to push over domino after domino. The resurrection of Jesus offers me a new identity and a new mission in the world and a new way of thinking about reality, about God and myself and other people and relationships and reconciliation and forgiveness and life before death and life after death. It offers a new power and a new promise. It can rescue me from joylessness and despair. It transforms my grief and my loss, as acute as it may be. It removes the sting of death. It means that if I trust Christ with my life, I actually don't need to fear what comes after death. And the resurrection offers freedom from my past, promise to my present and eternal life for my future, all as a gift. And the resurrection means there's no suffering, there's no failing that is so great that God cannot redeem it. And so the resurrection really does rebuke your resignation. It confronts you with a hope that can only come from the knowledge that Jesus is alive and powerfully at work in this world, more than ever before. But oh wow, it's subtle. And it is easy to miss. God is sovereign over life and history. The resurrection of Jesus means that love triumphs over evil. Those in Christ are on the winning team. Your suffering has significance. Death isn't the end. You're not going to be stuck in a grave rotting forever. Those in Christ have a substantial, a secure, and a beautiful future to look forward to. In Christ, you are more than a conqueror. Regardless of the storms that are raging in your life, within you, around you, you can know the peace of God which passes understanding, and it can be deeply well with your soul. There's no idea or truth on par with the resurrection. It forces you to reassess your entire life. You have to become suspicious of nihilism, despondency, apathy, cynicism, and despair. And the stories you tell about yourself, you've got to evaluate this little cocoon that you're walking in and saying, is this actually the story of the real world? Or is new creation breaking out around me and I'm going to bury hope in this area of my life or in this area of my life? You actually have to start at the resurrection and reverse engineer your entire worldview because it's the hinge of not just history, but your history, or it can be. The resurrection declares like nothing else can that new life and new opportunity are available to anyone 
who gives leadership of their lives over to Jesus. And to me, it's so strange. I, I try to articulate all these implications of the resurrection. And if you were to start with those implications, you'd think, wow, that first Sunday morning, it must have been like a light show. It must have been like God writing across the sky. Look what's happened. My son is alive and Jesus being lifted up and everyone sees it and it's big and it's loud and it's unmissable. But it's so subtle and small and almost imperceivable. But remember, a seed grows with no sound, but a tree falls with loud noise. Destruction has noise, creation is quiet, and resurrection and new creation, even more so. So this Easter in a world with many loud things screaming for your attention, let's not fall into the trap of looking for God amidst all that clamor and all that noise. The power of the resurrection and the hope that it offers you is subtle, it is quiet, The resurrection whispers, it does not shout, and it's easy to miss. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. New creation has begun. New power and promise are available to you right now, today. Don't miss it. Let's pray.